0: You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Well, the reason we picked uh, the book of Malachi, it's the final book of the Old Testament. And it's the last word that God has to, you know, speak directly to his people to prepare his people, the hearts of his people, for the first coming of Jesus Christ for the first Christmas, if I may if I may say that. So that's a pretty good reason why we picked the book of Malachi, and we want to go uh, through this book kind of in depth, verse by verse, as I said, even though today I have 13 verses to get through. I know it's, we're, you're going to have lunch today. Don't worry. Uh, we're not going to be here forever, <laughs> but I do have quite a bit of uh, verses that I want to get through. So just giving you a heads up. Uh, it's I'm probably just going to scratch the surface in a sense, but hopefully, even in this scratching the surface, we'll, we'll get lots from it still. Quick disclaimer, now I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. Is it okay if I teach a little bit today? Yeah. Okay, okay. It's not going to be pretty and pleasant <laughs> uh, because some of the things our passage uh, today talks about are not popular at all. Um, but we decided as a church that we won't shy away from any passages. So, um, you know, that's exactly what we're going to do today. And, and not every single word, and, because um, families and, and marriages are going to be kind of central in a sense. It doesn't mean that if you're single, it's not going to be for you. No, I think there's food for everyone. So don't, don't leave when you hear, hey, this is, uh, you know, referring to marriages and, and men and women. And so just stick around. Um, the book of Malachi which by the way just to give you a little bit of a of a context was a post exilic time and it was kind of around the same time when Ezra and Nehemiah uh, made their way back to Jerusalem Uh, so this would have been 440 BC around that time so the book of Malachi sums up what the whole testament has been pointing to which is God's people cannot be faithful to the Covenant that's ah, just the reality. It's sad, but that's, that's it. They failed again and again, right? And while God will deal with their sin, he will not abandon them, okay? As Lucas was pointing to last week, studying the book of Malachi is like looking through a microscope through different lenses, right? And every section that we're going through, you know, every each Sunday, we get to feel that we're looking at Malachi from a different vantage point. And Flo started us off a few weeks ago with, God's love, that was kind of the lens, God's love, and how the Israelites were asking God, hey, how have you loved us, God? Like, wow, really? And God's like, um, do you really want to play this game, right? You, you really want to ask that question? And then Raz continued with a different lens, where the priests were dishonoring God with their filthy sacrifices, and then asking with the same rude attitude, how are we dishonoring you, God? And the last week, Lucas touched on the first nine verses of Malachi 2, uh, and he talked about how God rebuked the priests, rebuked the Levites, uh, calling them to, back to listen to God's instructions, to listen to God's calling on their life. And today, looking at our passage, starting from verse uh, 10 uh, from, from chapter 2, most commentators consider... Verses 10 to 16, so a big portion of what we're going to look at today, uh, to mark a new section of the book of Malachi, like, kind of like a new lens, right? Um, and Because Malachi, again, changes the focus of his address, changes the lens. So Malachi's primary audience today for, today, for the passage for today, is the people, the priests, had caused to stumble, which we read in verse 8. That's very interesting and very important to, to, to remember. Generally speaking, though, what God really focuses on in the book of Malachi is relationships. Okay, And we see that a lot. We're going to see that a lot in our our passage today. And specifically, what we're talking about is first relationship with God and then relationship with one another, starting with the members of our family first. Sociologists will tell us that we have between 500 people to 2,500 people that we relate to on a yearly basis but we spend about forty percent to fifty percent you know with the five with five people usually these are the people that are in our family and if you have kids and if you're married that, that would be those people and the interesting thing is that those these five people are the people that you would love most but at the same time you would have the most relational frustration with as well and so what happens in every relationship at some point, um, is at some point you reach this this mark of the perseverance test, and the perseverance test is is this: Are we going to go forward, or are we just gonna give up? Are we going to hang in there because it's a tough season, or are we going to call it quits? Which is gonna be, and the reality is that that's true of our relationship with God. First, so many times, even in my life, I'm like, forget it. I'm done. I'm done. This God thing. I'm just not going to do it right But it's true in our relationships with our spouses as well or any family member uh, For for that matter and that's where the people in Malachi 2 find themselves in. They're not Atheists, but I'll tell you what they are They're just confused. They're tired They're worn down. They're beat up Um, They don't know what's going on They're in that kind of a season that maybe we find ourselves in. And primarily, they are in this situation because, and there's no other way of putting it, because of sin. Because of sin. And the simplest way I can can say it is, and I say this quite a bit, you choose to sin, you choose to suffer, right? And they were neglecting God's instructions, and when you do that, you will suffer, And God has a specific word for for the Jewish people in our passage Regarding their relationship with him first and then their relationship with one another and I'm pretty sure This applies to us as well So let's just jump right in we're gonna take a few verses at a time and go to work. So Malachi 2 Starting with verse 10. I'm gonna read the first three verses and then we'll see what God has to say Do we not all have one father? Did not want God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. Amen. Mm. So here's here's, here's what God is saying everybody's really hurting, and I can see this. They're all very emotional. There are lots of tears, lots of drama going on. And God says, let's pull back. Let's do Google Earth. Let's look at the big picture. The pain is caused by the problem of the structuring of your relationships. That's what God is saying. And God says, the way to fix the relational pain in your life is to start with the first most important relationship." The relationship with me so whatever you're dealing with or whoever you're dealing with first the first issue is you've got to find the Lord in the midst of it and ask how's my relationship with God so let me ask do you have any dysfunctional relationships in your family do you have fragmented relationships in your family Well, then let me ask this, how's your relationship with the Lord? And is that in the position of priority that it ought to be? Because that's, they'll be telling. And God tells us two things right off the get-go in verse 10. That he created us and that he's our father. Very interesting and very important at the same time. So as our creator, that means that God is our maker. And this is where we find meaning in life. So atheism has a continual problem, I believe, uh, of giving life meaning because he's, here's, how they, you know, here's how they say it, that, you know, that it works. If, if you come from no one and if you're here uh, for no reason and when you die you're going nowhere, well, it's hard to find meaning, isn't it? Thomas Hobbes said, uh, and I quote, Life is brutal, nasty, and short, but so what? But so what? <laughs> so what? We've got to live this life right now. Not so what? Christianity says this that all of life, according to the teaching of the Bible, finds its meaning, finds its value, finds its purpose in relationship with God. You come from God, you're here for God, you will die and stand before God, and if, if you're in a relationship with God through the redemptive work of Jesus, you will be with God forever. That's the storyline of the Bible. So God is your creator, and you're here, and if Let me just say this. If you're here, if you're not a Christian or if you don't think biblically yet, I need you to know that your life is not an accident. Your life is not a mistake, right? Your your life is divinely appointed by God and He knows you and He loves you and He cares for you. and, And He has a destiny and a purpose just for you, specifically for you. And He says that His relationship with you is like a father to a son. And for those of us who have parents that too, for those of us who are parents too, (laughs) and once you have kids, boy, once you have a child, it changes the way you look at God. I mean, you realize, oh my goodness, if God loves me the way I love this child, his love for me must be pretty nuts, pretty crazy. The reality is that he loves me and he loves us more than I love my kids. And I'm like, just, just poof. This is what Matthew 7, 11 says, and I quote, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Like, wow. So once you have a kid, this child hasn't done anything to earn love. He just starts with love. He hasn't done anything to earn relationship. He just starts with a relationship. Right? That's the heart of God. That's the Father's heart of God. And so in our context here, this means that God is loving, that God is relational. This has helped me a lot as I'm looking and studying the book of Malachi. and Maybe it will help you guys as well. It's like God calling a family meeting. He's calling all of his kids, his sons, his daughters, right? And he says, okay, okay. I know things are painful. I know things are hard. I know you're confused. Let's just start here. I made you. You're not a mistake or an accident. Secondly, I love you. I'm your dad. I'm here to help. I'm calling this family meeting so I can give you instruction, so I can help you, so you, won't, so you wouldn't just suffer and destroy your lives. That's the whole heart in context of the book of Malachi. And what this relationship with God does, it meets our deepest relational need. It meets our deepest relational need. Uh, question for you. Do you know that you have relation relational needs that are inexhaustible or infinite did you know that you do and so what God is saying is that part of the problem that we have in our relationships is that if you invert if you put your child or or spouse or friend in God's place you're gonna overwhelm them you're gonna exhaust them because they're not infinite they're finite God is infinite, and some of our relational needs are infinite. And if we put a finite person in an infinite position, we are going to exhaust them, and they are going to disappoint us big time. That's why it's so tough to keep a relationship going, especially in our days. It's tough to be married for a a lifetime, isn't it? Because we expect mere people to fill in the huge gaps that only God can fill. And so what God is saying is, I know you've got some relational problems. But the first problem is, you and I, it's not working out. You and I, this relationship is not healthy, and it's not because of me, it's because of you. That's what he says. And as a result, you are seeking from people, starting with your spouse, needs that only can be met by me. And so, the first relationship with God, it meets the deepest relational need, and then it models healthy relationships. So then you know how to live life and how to love your wife and how to love your kids and how to love your neighbors. You need that first relationship. You need to get it right and to learn how God loves. So God is saying, let's work on our relationship first. So here's what I would tell you. Whatever the pain, whatever whatever temptation, whatever trouble, whatever trial you have, first things first, how is your relationship with God? How is it? And you may ask at this point, well, how do we measure that? What's the measuring stick here? Well, I mean, think of, think of the closest relationship that you have, maybe a spouse or a a, a parent. How is your, how are your communication? You know, how's the communication between you and God? How is it like? Because I I need to talk to my wife, so I don't, you know, so so we keep this going. How is your communication with God? Do you pray on a regular basis? Do you commune with God? How, let me ask, how, how do you make decisions? There, there's another question. Do you involve God in that? Is God the first person that you go to when you make a decision? Can people tell that you are passionate about God, that you love God? Is there habitual sin in your life? Because the Bible says, hey, if you, if you obey my commands, you love me. Are you pursuing holiness? Are you you confessing your sin uh, uh, regularly? Are you you repenting of your sin? These are all questions to ask to assess if our relationship with God is at a healthy uh, stage or, or state. Because until that is strong, everything else will be weak. Until that is mended, everything else will be broken. And so all of, our, all of your problems, your first issue, is your relationship with God. It meets your deepest relational needs. And it also models what a healthy relationship looks like. And then he talks about the relationship with your spouse. Now, the problem in the context of our passage for today in Malachi 2 is that the men have been, have been with women that they're not supposed to be. And God is keeping the men responsible for this. <laughs> So God comes to them first. So men, you are responsible to lead your families well. Let's just move on. Again, let me just read verse 11. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has uh, desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. Does this still happen today? Or men do that? Oh, yeah. But the reality is that believing women do this as well, right? And now they're frustrated because it's not ending happily ever after. Hey, I thought we're going to be blessed. What's going on? Our lives are ruined, actually. How many people, how many of us, the holidays are coming, right? and, and, And we're like, oh, I get a nervous eye twitch when I think about seeing the relatives at Christmas. No, seriously, I'm just being, you know, real. Our family org chart is just super complicated. One pastor said it like this I'm just reading books about rapture, and I'm hoping that I leave before Christmas so I don't see them. (laughs) Christian joke, come on. (laughs) Be nice, laugh. (laughs) Because what happens is life is filled with relationships, and some of them, some of the most complex and painful relationships are in our families. Because God says, I try and I try to spare you the pain and the brokenness, right? But you never listen. All of my instructions, God says, are a big, huge neon sign telling you I love you so much. I don't want you to hurt yourself and others in the process. But you won't listen and that's why you're in this broken place. But even in your faithlessness, God says, I'm not going to abandon you. Amen. Let's look at verse 12. Let's continue As for the man who does this, right? Kind of going off. Whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though He brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. So what happens is God holds the men responsible for the condition of their covenantal relationship marriage. But let me just say this. How many of you heard that Christians and non-Christians, their divorce rates are the same? Have you heard that? Have you heard that, that the adultery rates for Christians and non-Christians are kind of the same? Have you heard that? And it becomes this, that's not true, by the way. And it becomes this powerful, pervasive, cultural myth. And it becomes this gravitational, compelling lie. And people are like, oh, okay, that's, that's probably true. Well, I'm just going gonna, gonna to do the same thing then because, you know, kind of everyone's doing it. Let me just shed some light on this and tell you it's not true. It was based on some faulty research back in the day, some years ago, where a research firm would go out here in our country and he would ask, are you a Christian? Well, I mean, statistically, everyone is going to say that is a Christian in our country. But just looking at our country, is that, is that true? That's not going to hold up in court, will it, right? So, so, so that's because you can profess something and live something totally different. And that's kind of popular, right? You can just be this nominal Christian coming to church once in a while. You do pray and read the Bible, but, you know, still profess that you're a Christian. No, it doesn't work like that. There's a man named Bradford Wilcox, and he's a researcher in sociology at the University of Virginia. He's considered perhaps the leading sociologist on marriage and family in our nation. And he did, this, he did a comprehensive survey, and he decided to add a few additional questions on top of, hey, are you a Christian? So not just professing, but practicing. Are you a practicing Christian? And he would ask the same the following questions. Do you believe that the Bible is God's word? That people are sinners and that Jesus is our savior? Do you believe those things? And then in your behaviors, do you go to church on a regular basis? Do you read your Bible on a regular? Do you, do you pray on a regular basis? And those who said yes to all these questions, they're not just professing their faith, but they're practicing their faith. The Bible says this in uh, First uh, uh, James 1:22: You know, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Right? Do what it says. So let me just summarize his findings. For those professing and practicing believers, they have the lowest divorce rates. They have the lowest rates of spousal abuse. Interesting. They have the lowest rates of adultery and the highest rates of happiness. Wow. So I just want to encourage us that God's way still works. Amen? But do you know what else he found? Very telling, very interesting. The highest rates of divorce are between two kinds of people who don't share the same religion, right? It's between, let's say, a Buddhist and a Muslim or an atheist and a believer, right? These, those marriages have the highest rates of divorce. Why? Because Jesus predicted this. He said, a house that is divided cannot stand. Division literally means two visions, right? So if you have two visions, you have division. Division is a problem when you have it in marriage or in any, any community, right? And then it becomes more complicated when you have kids as well. Just imagine that. Hey, I, I think we should go to, the ch- to church. No, I think we should go to the mosque. Well, I believe the Bible's authority. Well, I don't. Well, whoa, that's division. And so this is exactly the context of our passage. This is the situation these Jewish people find themselves in. They have neglected their relationship with God. And that means that every other relationship will suffer because of that. They've neglected God's design in their life. And for their families and for their marriages. And now they find themselves in a lot of pain. Let's continue with verse 13. Another thing you do, says God, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. So what God is saying is, I'm not going to bless your plan. I'm going to bless my plan. (laughs) Okay? You can weep all you want. You can wail all you want. You can just, you know, drama all you want, right? No, no, no. God doesn't bless your plan. He blesses His plan. And that's why we need to seek His will first. But why doesn't He bless my plan? And I know I'm ruining my life. But what is he... Okay, verse 14. You ask why? Is it because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth? You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. It's getting pretty... Pretty serious. And God is referring to the men here. Men tend to see marriage as contractual, not covenantal. That's just the reality. This is why men, a lot of them, can win at work and they can lose at home because they suck at relationships. I can say that because I'm a man. This is why men are, a lot of them are good with money, but they're bad with relationships. Let me show you the difference between contract and covenant. Now, contracts are not bad, but contracts are for businesses, are for business. Therefore, the transaction and purchase of goods and services, that's not how the Christian marriage works, right? The Bible says in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What that means is God's people, we ought to think differently. So in a contract, I seek my best interest, right? Right? How many of you negotiate contracts for business? And that's good. That's a good thing. I'm hoping to negotiate this deal because I want to do what's, you know, what's best for my interest, right? That's a contract. In a covenant, I see God's will for our best interest. God, what do you you know, what do you want from us? God, what is your plan? What is your desire for this relationship? In a contract, you negotiate terms. In a, in a covenant, we serve each other. I'm for you, you're for me, we're for God. In a contract, we keep, you know, record of performance. If you, don't, if, you, if, you, if you do a good job, I compensate you. If you don't, I don't pay you or I negate the contract. You know, you've got this kind of a relationship when you hear something like this. You owe me, wife, you know. You owe me. This is performance talk. In a covenant, love keeps no record of wrongs. In a contract, I punish for failure. In a covenant, I forgive failure. And what you end up in a contract is a professional relationship. What you end up with in covenant is a personal, loving relationship. Well, let me ask, what kind of relationship does God have with you if you're a genuine believer? Well, he serves us. God forgives us. God doesn't keep a record of wrong if you trust in Christ. And Jesus died for us while we were still rebellious against Him. That's pretty easy, right? <laughs> Covenantal relationship. God wants a personal relationship. That's why if you're adopted into the family of God, if you you don't have to worry that you need to perform so He doesn't send you to hell. Like you don't. There's no pressure there in that sense, right? It's, it's not a contractual relationship where God is like, you're, you're in, but I'm telling you, if your account goes upside down, I'm going to flip your position. God doesn't do that because he's a father and he dealt with your sin by sending Jesus to sacrifice in our place. In this kind of relationship, God wants... Check this out. In this kind of relationship, God wants us to have with our spouses. No, no, amen. No, amen. Amen. Okay. And our relatives. Amen. And each other. Amen. But if we get our relationship with him wrong, guess what? We're gonna mess up every other relationship. Let's continue with verse 15. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what and what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. So We're still talking about marriage, but single people, don't, don't check out, please. There's so much for everyone here. So in a marriage, the two become one. And it's not which one, it's a new one in Christ. The believing couple has a resource at their availability that the unbelieving couple does not. God gives the Holy Spirit to, to those who walk with Him So that they can experience a measure of his power and love in their relationship. Did you know that? What this means is for your marriage to be godly, for your you know, relationship with God to be godly, it cannot be a natural marriage, it cannot be a natural life, it just can't. It must be a supernatural marriage because God's standards are very high. So we're going to need to love with the love that we don't have. We're gonna need to forgive with the forgiveness that we do not possess. To endure with a perseverance that is beyond your capability and capacity. But God gives the Holy Spirit to empower us to live at that standard. Amen? And that's why many marriages crumble. That's why many relationships don't make it. Because we simply do not want His help and His blueprint. We want to do it our way. There's absolutely no power in that. Just brokenness. The next question that is asked in our verse, in this verse, is, and what is God seeking? What is God looking for? See, in football, we always drive towards the end zone, right? That's kind of our goal, right? Um, for us, the end zone in our marriage is personal fulfillment and happiness. Now, does God want us to have fun and to enjoy our spouse? And does he? Sure. Sure. But that's our end goal. That's our angle is that that I feel good and that I'm loved, and then that, that's the end goal for us. For God, the end zone, the end goal is what? Godly offspring. We tend to think in, in in of having a good time, and we should. But 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 that's our highest goal because we are pretty narcissistic. I'm including myself there. God wants us to think of of leaving a good legacy and buy it to change the world we live in by bringing more people to Christ. We tend to think in terms of days. God thinks in terms of generations. We make decisions and we don't think about future generations. We just don't. Has this been true in your family? We could see this very clearly when someone does it to us. If grandma and grandpa wouldn't have done that, I would not be here. If mom and dad wouldn't have done that, I would not be here, right? Because of them, I'm here. But listen, there's nothing you can do about that anymore. So don't play that victim, right? But here's what you need to know. Here's what you can change. Someone's coming in the future. Maybe your kids, right? And the decisions you make today will affect them. Let's think in terms of that. And God comes to his people and they're making very short-term decisions. And God's like, no, 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 no. You need to think long-term, legacy, lineage, godly offspring, not just offspring. How many of you found that offspring is easier than godly offspring? I'm saying a lot here. Church, while not all of us are called to have physical kids and offspring, listen to what I'm saying. Let me remind us that we are all called to have, so to speak, spiritual children and spiritual offspring. Who are you discipling this season? Think generations. Think, you know, don't think personal fulfillment. Who are you pouring into, investing into in this season? Who are you connecting to Jesus this season? Who are you pursuing with the gospel this season? Who? Who? Don't just think about yourself. Don't just be spiritually narcissistic, right? God has given us so much grace. He's given us salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternity with him. Wouldn't you want to share all of that with others? Because God wants to. Let's continue with verse 16 and 17. The man who, who, who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. You have wearied the Lord with your words. You have wearied him. You you ask by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? They're exhausting God out. Well, God here is using sort of a human language to express that. He's not exhausted, trust me. Well, don't trust me, trust the Bible. But they keep coming to God and they're saying, here's what we want you to do, God. We've messed up our lives. We're still messing and we don't want to change, but would you still please just bless us anyways? Come on, you can still do it. And God's like, no, that's not going to work. That's not how it works. How many of you know someone that's got a a bad plan and they're asking you for help, right? You're like, I love you, but you're going to mess up your life even more. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And this is like a family meeting where God is like, I'm trying to help you. No, you're not. (laughs) I love you. No, you don't. I'm here to help. We can't see that. Like, wow, right? These guys married into families they're not supposed to. Their families are not rightly architected. They don't love, worship, or serve God. They're just not healthy. And the dysfunctional, extended families are crashing into their immediate families. Everyone's crying. Everyone's in pain. It's a painful situation. And God says, well, let's just re architect all of that. Let's just start from the beginning. And start with me and my word. Let's build your families and your community on my word, on my authority, and I'll bless my plan. And if you choose to work with me and my plan, I will bless you. This is an opportunity for us, Summit Church, to assess all of our broken relationships. Starting with our relationship with God and ask the tough questions. Is there anything in my life where God has been convicting me to repent of in this season? And then ask the same question in regards to your marriage. Is there anything that I need to change? Not the wife, not the husband, me, me. Is there anything God is calling you to repent of? And if you're not married, the next relationship in line. But for those who are divorced, because I can't avoid verse 16, can I? The verse that we're looking at now in some translations like the NASB, which I, I love this translation, says God hates divorce. That's, that's, that's the Bible. Here's what it doesn't say. God hates the divorcee. Because God doesn't hate the divorcee. God loves the divorcee. What God hates is not the person who is divorced, but the pain that the divorce causes and the destruction that it creates. And the way we have it here in our verses, it does violence. And so what God is inviting us to is healthy, loving, healing, changing forgiving blessed relationships amen he's used this word a few times that 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 people have been that people have been faithless right and it reminds me of this language in the new testament second timothy 2 13 where god says i if you are faithless i am still faithful so so what we want to do is we want to emulate god and his love for us in our relationship with him and be filled with love Compassion, encouragement, mercy for those who have been through a tough time and devastating relationships. And at the same time, we want to hold up a highly godly standard and encourage perseverance with the Lord first and then with our spouse for those who are married. This leads to an inevitable series of questions, doesn't it? And I will try and answer. What does the Bible give for reasons for divorce then? And God's talking about faith and family here, right? Because it matters. And I can't just hit Malachi 2 where God says, okay, let's talk about marriage and divorce and then just sort of move right along because there, there are reasonable questions. So what are the biblical grounds for divorce? And I'll touch on three of them that are very clear if you ask me in the Word. There are probably more, but those are argued. I will, I'll touch three that are very clear. Number one, death. This immediately raises the question, can I kill my spouse? No, no, you cannot kill your spouse. Little sugar helps the medicine go down, right? So 1 Corinthians 7:39, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. So here's what it means. Marriage is for a lifetime. It is. If your spouse dies, your marriage is concluded. There's a big debate if we're going to be married in heaven. I don't know. You know I haven't been there. We'll see when we get there. But when we're, you're married, as long as you're alive, once your spouse has gone, your marriage is over. Heartbreaking, but very simple to understand. Number two, abandonment. This is huge. Abandonment. 1 Corinthians 7.15 But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Sometimes people just disappear. They just take off. I mean, I've heard cases where people move to another country and eliminating any lines of communication, right? And there's nothing you can do about it. You can pray, you can wait, you can give it some time. But at some point, you've got to move on, right? And number three, adultery and sexual immorality. Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.90 are the passages that kind of talk about this. There's, there, there's some more, but let me just mention these two. And Matthew 19:9 says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And what Jesus is saying is that in the marriage relationship, the two shall become one flesh, right? And sexual immorality, particularly adultery, it violates those covenantal sacred commands. So on the grounds of adultery, divorce is biblically permitted. Now, you need to know that we live in a world that doesn't think that marriage is particularly important or that the intimate relationship is particularly sacred, but God does, okay? So this would be another biblical reason for divorce, but that's not God's heart. And we see this in Matthew 19. That's not God's heart. God's heart is for forgiveness, Reconciliation, redemption. So my interpretation is that not even infidelity should stop us from pursuing our spouse in forgiveness and redemption. If you want to present the gospel through your marriage, and we should. What is a closer picture of the gospel? Divorce or forgiveness and reconciliation? But in order for that to happen, listen to me. In order for that to happen, you need both parties on the same page. When you have abandonment, that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. A couple of things briefly, and then we'll move on to the next section of verses. And those will be really quick, so don't think that we're going to be here for the whole day, right? Now, there's always a case where it's hard to navigate through, and it's just not clear. And people will say, hey, can I divorce you know, my wife or my husband? If you're in a tough season, or if you're walking with someone who's in a tough season, maybe these quick three, four tips will help. Number one, your heart is in the wrong if you're actively seeking to make your circumstances fit some criteria, right? And you're like, well, how do I get out? <laughs> you just, just, go and, just go and surrender fully to God and, and, and focus on your relationship with God at that point, right? Because obviously there's something wrong in the heart because you just want out, right? Um, number two, You do not have to end the relationship even if you have grounds to. People can forgive one another and reconcile, and it could go from willful to wonderful, right? That's the heart of God. That's the heart of the gospel. This is exactly what Jesus shows us through his redemptive work of salvation. A bunch of sinners saved by his grace. And then number three, you can't make this decision in isolation. You cannot make this decision in isolation. You bring in wise counsel, counsel, and I'm not talking about family and friends that kind of agree with you, right, and kind of just go with you, you know, along. I'm talking about pastors, Christian counselors, people who are wise. You cannot make this decision in haste, and you cannot make this decision in lust either, just because you have someone else. It doesn't work like that. And then lastly, this only works if both people surrender to God. It only works if both people submit to God. Let's finish off with the verses in chapter 3 we have five verses but I'm gonna cluster them together and we're just gonna we're just gonna go really quickly through them I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple the messenger of the Covenant whom you desire will come says the Lord Almighty but who can endure the day of his coming who can stand when he appears For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. So here's where we find ourselves. This is the end of the Old Testament. This is a, if I can say this, 2,000 year project, right? This is God setting up the nation of Israel. This is God setting up the family. This is God setting up the old covenant church and the temple and the priesthood and the sacrificial system. And it's all foreshadowing the coming of jesus it's all a huge neon sign pointing to christ we cannot wait for christ our savior now the reason all of this is is to get people ready for the first christmas so how's it going not good so then what are we going to do about it well the big idea is this family without jesus doesn't work church without jesus doesn't work nation without jesus doesn't work Life without Jesus doesn't work. The reason it's not working is because Jesus hasn't shown up yet. Right? We're seeing things from their their vantage point. And so what it creates is this thirst, this longing, this hunger, this appetite, this need. Where is Jesus? Do you see this need in your life? Do you see this thirst in your life? Because you, you, you can just easily tell that it doesn't work without him. And as we've seen in chapter 2, the very last verse, right? They are asking, where is the God of justice? In the beginning now of chapter 3, here's what God has to say. Behold, meaning pay attention. I have good news, and it's not you, it's me, God says. I'll fix it. You're the problem. I'm the solution. Behold, I send you my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Referring, of course, to the John, John the baptizer, uh, and that he is going to pave and plow and get stuff ready for Jesus' coming. And then the remainder of verse 1, if you, if you caught that, it says, And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, in whom you desire. Whom you desire. Do, do, do you hear the, relational, the relationship covenantal language in verse 1? God wants a covenantal relationship with you. Friend, God does not have a contractual relationship with you and thank God for that Because if that were the case we would all be doomed (laughs) Friend you do not want what's fair. You do not want that We often say stuff like God's not fair. This is not fair. Oh, oh if God were fair, we would all be in the pit of hell But the reality is that God is infinitely gracious and good you sin You need to suffer and pay the price. You need to go to purgatory, some people say, right? And pay me back. That is contractual. You need to die. You need to go to hell. That is contractual. And the reality is that we're all broken. We've all sinned before a holy and a perfect God. And the wages of sin is death. So if we get anything else other than death, we are graced and blessed. But the good news is that you can have a covenantal relationship. With God through Jesus Christ, where He is faithful even though we're we're faithless, where He is forgiving even when we're undeserving, where He is loving from His pure heart, even when we're unloving from our hard heart. That's the Father's heart of God. In the last three verses, He will sit as as a refiner and purifier of silver, He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver then the Lord will will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty their question is god when are you going to deal with all these people they're messing our lives up the sorcerers and the perjurers these wicked people who oppress the widows remember these are the people who who the priests had caused to stumble and they think that we're here because lord all these evil people around us what are you going to do about them lord and god says don't worry about it oh, take care of those people right now. What you have to worry about is yourself. And what God says is, trust me to deal with everyone else and then invite me to deal with you. As far as you're concerned, you should surrender your heart fully to God and follow Him. Do not worry about your boss who is evil and corrupt and seems to be getting away with all of that. And on top of it, He's got all the money in the world and all the success in the world. And that just bothers you so much. Don't worry about them. As far as you're concerned, you should surrender your heart fully to Jesus Christ and follow him. Be satisfied in him and let him be your satisfaction, your ultimate treasure. So here's what God says. Jesus is coming because family doesn't work unless Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming because church doesn't work unless Jesus is coming. And the good news is that Jesus is already here. Jesus has come to build his kingdom. He hasn't come yet a second time, and we're waiting for that. And he brought the gift of salvation for all of those who would receive it. Repent of their sin and call on him. So what are you going to do with this truth? And then I, I, I got really good news for us, and I'm ending When he's talking about refining and he's talking about soap, what he's talking about is purifying and cleansing us. And the way it would work, you would heat up a metal to draw out these impurities, right? And I have talked about this a couple of months ago. And these impurities, they harden our hearts just like sin does. Well, because of sin, actually. This reduces or removes tenderness in our hearts, creating a loss of sensitivity towards God and all of a sudden you find yourself because of sin and because of not repenting, you're just hardened towards God. And this is a perfect setting for deception, for the devil to sweep in, to kill, steal, and destroy. And God does this purifying and cleansing by allowing suffering in difficult circumstances in our life. And through that pain and suffering, through the furnace of affliction, He cleans us, He cleans our hearts from these impurities. Impurities of unforgiveness, jealousy, anger, greed, narcissism, adultery. But that's a process that hurts. Really good for you, but it hurts. And he's doing it because he really loves us. It gets a little confusing with these last two verses, doesn't it? It almost seems like you know, these verses talk you know, talks about two categories of people. One category that will be judged, right? And another that will be saved but purified. What is the difference here? In short, accepting the gift of forgiveness and salvation from Jesus will put you automatically in the you will be purified category. The group, the other group, is the group that has no fear of God, as verse 5 says. And this is the group that continually rebels against God and they could care less that He is God and that He offers salvation. Well, let me ask which group do you belong to? I'm sorry, I didn't ask if you. Go to church I didn't ask if you read your Bible once in a while I asked which group do you belong to salvation is through Christ alone nothing that we do will save us but it will cost us everything to follow Christ when Jesus becomes truly your Savior and Lord he becomes your ultimate treasure and satisfaction no one will have to pressure you to come to church or to sing with the Saints so church being reminded of His love, would you please persevere? That was the theme. We looked at how to persevere in our relationships. Church, being reminded of God's amazing love, would you please persevere? Please, keep going. Look up. Get up by the power of the Holy Spirit that that He has given you. Look fully into his face and focus on his love so that his love and transforming power may spill into every arena of your life and make you like pure gold for his glory. Would you stand with me? Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.